the stories that the mind is telling is just a thought. It is just a story. It's not ever really true. You know, we have a certain view, but we don't really know. When we really go into the sensory reality, there's really nothing solid there at all in the space of awareness. When you actually tune into the actuality of the body, it's not solid at all, and it's not separate from its environment. The whole spiritual path is really just about seeing through the delusion. The more we recognize the fluidity of everything and the insubstantiality of all our ideas, the more we're able to be at ease with things being exactly the way they are. Which doesn't mean we might not do something to change them. One minute there's this transcendence or bliss or something. Another moment there's this personal story. And I don't feel like we can really dismiss either one. But there can be a noticing that the whole thing is one whole appearing in this aware space. Nick Hyam here from nisagayoga.com. Welcome to another non-duality podcast. In this episode... Paul Dobson speaks with Joan Tollefson. We can say, I'm not this, I'm not that, you know, I'm not the body, I'm not the mind, but I am. I also am the body and the mind, but I'm not just that, you know, I'm not, that's not all I am. I can't deny that this is happening as a specific wave in the ocean. At the same time, I also, in a deeper way, am the whole ocean, not ever gripping down onto one specific view of it. Yeah, I see both the impersonal, vast, boundless, wholeness, totality, and also the personal story of Joan in all its messiness and twists and turns. And I don't feel like we can really dismiss either one. In fact, when we really go into what we're calling the personal, not the story, not the narrative, but when we really go into the, the actual nitty-gritty itself, just the sensations, you know, the visual sensations, the auditory sensations, the tactile somatic sensations, just the sensory reality of it, there's really nothing solid there at all. And so you, you end up, if you go into that, you really end up in the same kind of open, spacious, empty vastness that you end up in mm. if you take the other approach of sort of backing up to, you know, what is, what is beholding all of this, what is seeing all of this, um, and the sort of space of awareness. Um, and I feel like both approaches are, are work together. In, in parallel, you know, mm. I am the body. I'm not only the body. I'm not encapsulated inside the body. I'm not limited to the body. Um, I'm the whole universe, really, <laughs> you know. But and, and actually, I have found that in exploring the body, I mean, I've done a lot of somatic work like Feldenkrais and martial arts and things like that. But whenever we really tune into the body, whether it's through somatic work or lovemaking or... <laughs> or any way of dancing, uh, yoga, any way of kind of tuning into the body, what I find is that we discover there's really no body there. You know, the body is not a solid thing. The way we, you know, we, the, what we see in the mirror, you know, sort of appears to be a solid thing. And what we think of as the body, it's like, but when you actually tune into the actuality of the body, 
it's not solid at all. And it's not separate from its environment and the awareness that's beholding it. The wave isn't a solid thing. It's just a movement of the ocean that is ever changing. Mm, it, it doesn't really go anywhere. <laughs> I wrote this last book because I wanted to write a book about aging and dying. And I wanted to sort of show the gritty side of it. And with death, I also wanted to not deny death because, you know, there is a, a, you know, when you lose a loved one or something, there is a loss there that you can't deny. But at the same time, I wanted to show that death is, in another way, doesn't, there is no, there's nothing to die. You know, you can really see that when you wake up in the morning or from a nap or something. There's this moment where, especially often with a nap, I think, you know, you wake up and there's this moment where you're sort of disoriented. You, you, you don't know where you are or who you are or, you know, and then you sort of watch the mind kind of reassembling everything. You know, like, <laughs> oh, yes, I'm Joan. And I'm in this room. It's <laughs> the heaviness day. comes back. <laughs> yeah. It's like you switch modes suddenly. I, I mean, you'd be in a nice deep, deep sleep. Everything's absolutely perfect. There's no self there to not to to worry about these kind of things and then suddenly you know within minutes of waking up we're back in this this character and all the suffering seems to arise with it with my meditations i've been lying down a lot recently that's just how i like to meditate but at some point i will fall asleep <laughs> in the meditation and then maybe about 10 minutes later i'll wake up and it's actually a great place to be because paul the idea of paul meditating has dropped i don't know what's doing the meditating at that point and it, to even call it meditation is probably not quite right. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, so it, meditation can be, you know, it really meditation is all the time it, because it's life. It's just, it's, I mean, I think formal meditation actually can be really helpful in, in seeing all the things we're talking about. But, but, um, but actually meditation is the nature of life. I mean, it's just, and it's constantly changing. In the one minute, there's this transcendence or bliss or something or spaciousness, no self. And then another moment, there's me and my and busy thoughts. And But there can be a noticing that the whole thing is one whole undivided happening that's always appearing in this aware space. You know? mm. it, it's really obvious that it's, that it's this kind of fluid, ever-changing dance. And yet, it's always, amazingly, right here, right now. It's always, it has these two qualities simultaneously. It's both constantly ever-changing. And at the same time, it's immovably always right here, right now, in this kind of timeless immediacy or whatever you want to call it, you know? Mm. It's always just this, this, you know? And you can't pin it down. You can't ever get hold of the, anything that's appearing. If you really try, you can't really pin anything down. But at the same time, you can't ever leave this here nowness. We sort of take our thoughts as some kind of objective report on reality or something, you know, like these are true. And so, you know, we don't even see them some of the time. Like we're, we're suddenly upset and we don't even really see what the thoughts were that went into that, what the story is. Because it because the thoughts, you know, they happen really quickly. They're like these little telegrams or something, you know. And I think it's really important to be able to kind of 
recognize that it is just a thought. It is just a story. What, you know, if you go deeply into anything that appears to be something, it kind of evaporates in some way. Mm. You know, reality is kind of, I don't know, multidimensional or hol holographic or fractal or like there's different kind of layers or something or dimensions of, <laughs> of this reality. And we can't really negate any of them, in my opinion, you know, so it's sort of like, <clears throat> yeah, on one level, we have climate change and mm. Donald Trump and, and um, racism, and we need to figure out what to eat for dinner and that whole level of reality. And we can't just dismiss that, I don't think. But when we start to look really closely at any of those, quote, things, there's really nothing solid there. You know, we don't really know what best for the universe or what the universe even is like when we think of something like climate change or something you know i don't know if it's a tragedy if human beings go extinct or blow ourselves up you know we have a certain view but we don't really know from the perspective of the totality not leaving the map world behind because we can't do that it's part of how we function but but to really be able to discern the difference and, and to hang out more and more in the actual, the actuality, what, which doesn't have a name. It's not radiant presence. It's not awareness. It's not God. It's not life. It's not existence. It's not the universe. It's not consciousness. It doesn't have a name. It's just this. It's just this. And it, it, even this is too much, you know, it's, it's yeah. just this. It's, it's, and to, to hang out more and more in the kind of bare actuality of that, you know, just being with the, the actuality of seeing, hearing, touching, feeling, sensing, awareing, just the presence itself, the, 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 the experiencing itself, mm. that's where the aliveness really is. I mean, that's where the juice is. But, yeah, we're scared of death, which is you know, the ultimate letting go in a way, the, the ultimate surrender of all of this, of everything we have believed to be about our life. I, I don't feel any psychological fear of death. I mean, I, I you know, I, I, I have a fear of like, I suddenly see a bus swerving toward me or something like that. You know, I have that. I, that's the instinctual fear of, you know, death or injury that's part of our biological survival system. But I don't have a psychological fear of death. Um, although it's interesting, I mean, you know, one of the things about recovering from cancer is that you keep having to go to these screenings to find out if you're still clear. And every time one of them comes up, um, it does sort of bring up the issue that you, oh, it, it might still be there or it yeah. might come back rather, you know? Mm. And, um, so it's interesting because, um, like, for example, I just went to one of these <laughs> And I'm sitting in my, I, you know, I'd had the, the scan and the blood work and all that. And then I have to go see the oncologist a few days later for the results. And I'm sitting in the office and they come in to take my blood pressure, blood pressure. And I usually have really low, good blood, not low, but good blood pressure. And I said, so how is it? And she said, it's a little on the high side. And, and I felt like I was very calm, but, but, you know, obviously there was a little, and I could feel that too. There was a little, you know, just this little trace of you know the one thing the cancer kind of made me aware of is that i i don't really want to die right now I'm yeah not, you know 
I mean, if, if I was to be dying right now, I think I'd be okay with it. I don't feel like I'd be like, no, no, resisting. But, um, but I don't really want to die either. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm, ha- I'm really want, I'm happy to be alive. Yeah. Well, that's beautiful. That's a, that's a really lovely place to be, Joan. <laughs> happy to be alive. That's, that's nice. So it kind of the scarier thing is it, what could be ahead than what's actually happening. Yeah, no, it's, and I think that's, I mean, in a way, it's part of our survival mechanism. It's functional on a, on a certain level. You know, we, for example, the fact that we can think about climate change and anticipate what might happen is part of what might enable us, although I'm dubious, but might enable us to, you know, do something about it. Um, and similarly, like um, the fact that I know I live in earthquake territory, I mean, I make reasonable, you know, I have I have shoes near my bed and a hard hat near my bed and a flashlight near my bed. Um, which is just kind of something you kind of do if you live in earthquake territory because, you know, you don't want to be in the dark with glass all over the floor and, and be in your bare feet or whatever you're sleeping, you know. So, um, so you know, it's functional on that level, but, but then the mind gets carried away with imagining, you know, oh, my God, the earthquake. What if I get buried under the house? Oh, my God, what if this happens? What if that happens? And and then it becomes not really functional. Then it becomes um, um, a form of suffering, and and that's kind of what we're we're that's kind of our human predicament because the dog um, doesn't doesn't have any idea about that they're living in. Well, you know, they may have some sense, like dogs apparently do sense an earthquake coming before before it happens, and they all start barking or something. But I don't think they think, oh my God, it's an earthquake feel something is going you know something is disturbing or however however it is for Mm. them you know but and it's natural isn't it it's a very sort of just a spontaneous kind of reaction to it it's well i mean that said not that our reactions are unnatural that's to kind of unnecessarily divide it up like a dog's barking and getting upset is natural and so this is what we do though isn't it It yeah but it's uh very subtly it is just our human nature it's part of you know that we have a more complex brain and more complex we're capable of more complex thinking than the dog yeah. so and that's both an advantage it has gotten us to the moon and to the top of the food chain <laughs> but it has also gotten us into a great deal of trouble such that we're now almost about to extinguish ourselves it seems <laughs> it's kind of about being in that simple really simple state of the dog but also being able to use the mind to function to create you know wonderful things and but then coming from that place of of wholeness as as opposed to coming from a contracted place of fear and and you know division and and everything else that goes with it but um who knows what's going to happen i i certainly don't no we don't we don't really know I, i like the way Eckhart tolle talks about how um you know with things like alcohol and drugs and and things like that what we're trying to do is is sort of get rid of get free from that sense of that thinking mind that's our torture instrument really you know Mm, we're trying to tune that out and it works but what we're really doing is sinking below the level of thought Mm. back to the level of the dog or the rock or something whereas whereas what spiritual awakening is pointing to is is i hate to use the word rising above because i'm not fond of that language but for lack of a better term, um, it's kind of rising above that, 
Um, and so that, like you just said, you can use the mind, you're, you know, the mind can function, but not to be trapped in, and those stories will still come up from time to time, but they can be seen, you know, you can notice, oh, wait a minute, I'm sitting here, you know, thinking about what if this happens and what if that happens and, and I'm fine right now. You know. It's just what it doing the mind doing what it does. It doesn't mean to be entrapping for you. you yeah, know? and I think that is one of the and one of the other things that formal meditation. And when I say formal, I don't mean sitting in the lotus position or anything. I just mean setting aside time and space to actually just be quiet and do nothing. Whether you're lying down or sitting out in a chair or or sitting on a cushion or whatever, however you're doing it. But but just one of the one of the ways I think that's helpful is is um, is what we're just talking about, <clears throat> you know, to see the think, see the machinations of the thinking mind. Because, you know, I remember when I first was starting out in meditation, um, I can remember thinking <laughs> that there was nothing happening except thinking. Even though I, I, I was very, I mean, I had been an artist, I was, I was very aware of the sensual level of, of, you know, visual sensory level of things, you know, we're, we're suddenly upset and we don't even really see what the thoughts were that went into that, what the, what, what the story is. Because, it, because the thoughts, you know, they happen really quickly. They're like these little telegrams or something, you know, and, and meditation sort of allows you to slow it down. Or it's something like the work of Byron Katie does this too. I mean, there's other ways of approaching it. But, but I think it's really important to be able to kind of recognize and hear the the stories that the stories that the mind is telling, and be able to recognize that it is just a thought. It is just a story. It's you know, and it's not necessarily. And in, in fact, it's not ever really true. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a huge realization, isn't it? Um, and people can tell this to you over and over again that your thoughts, you know, are oh. storytelling. And some thoughts can be useful relatively. But until you really see it, you, you kind of carry on believing your thoughts, completely 100% not even doubting what they're saying. Yeah. And that's that's misery, isn't it, really? It is. Um, but, and it's very, I mean, I still get hooked by certain thoughts. You know, I don't know that that ever completely, maybe for some people that completely disappears, but I don't think, you know. And some of them are useful. I mean, you know, if I have a thought suddenly, oh, my God, I left a pot on the stove turned on. <laughs> that's a helpful thought. Yeah. <laughs> you know. That is, Yeah. You know, we solidify things that aren't really solid in a way that causes a lot of suffering, you know, because we, and we can't, you know, then we become very, you know, what we see going on now is so much polarization. And, and I mean, Donald Trump occasionally says or does something that I actually like, but I can barely let myself even acknowledge that because, you know, he's like, the problem, and he is a huge problem. I mean, on the, on the, at least on the relative level of reality, he's definitely, a, in my opinion, a huge problem. But, um, but he's not like that's not all he is. You know, that's not that's not everything. And I just, I just, I admit, I just got that book by Mary Trump. You know, uh, and read it <laughs> because I was curious. Yeah, because you know she's in the family and she's a psychologist, so I was curious. And, and well, it's interesting because the book does give you some, you know, it does show you what a really disturbing person he is, you know, which you already know. But, 
but it also shows you kind of how he got that way. And, and, and then you have more, in a way, more compassion for him because, you know, he didn't just come out of nowhere. Um, people have, you know, there's less impulse control because of maybe how the brain is constructed or the neurochemistry or something. So uh, there's a lot of factors there. And, and, um, and the same is true of somebody who becomes a serial killer or a child rapist or um, Donald Trump. And it, it's based on the, on the notion that the very strongly uh, held notion um, that we have, that we are sort of this executive author inside the head who is, has free will and choice, you know. And yet when we, in a certain way, I mean, you can't really land on either the no free will or the free will position because they're both conceptualizations of what's going on and neither one of them completely captures it. So it's like, yes, we can do what we want, but we don't really get to choose what we want. I mean, the urge that comes up in any moment and whether that urge is more powerful than the, than the, you know, the other urge we have to sober up or to stop smoking or whatever the urge for the cigarette, is that going to be as powerful or more powerful in any given moment as the urge to stop smoking? We're not really in control of that, you know. And the more we recognize the fluidity of everything and the, the insubstantiality of all our ideas, and the more we're, we're able to be at ease with things being exactly the way they are, which doesn't mean we might not do something to change them. Yeah. The whole spiritual path is really just about seeing through what appears to obstruct that. It's about seeing through the delusion. And that, to me, is a lifelong, there may be, you know, big transformative moments where something really big kind of pops, but, but it's basically, it's, an, it's, a, it's a lifelong process of, of seeing through, waking up from delusion, not once and for all, but now. <laughs>